know him? Do you love him? Do you want to make him known? Well, these are the important questions our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, asks in today's Sunday sermon, The Forgotten Book of the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, inviting you to hop aboard the Bible bus for this important message from the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon. You know, many people think the Song of Solomon is just a great illustration of ideal married love, but as we'll soon discover, it's that, but it's also so much more. It's about God's deep love for us and how He's calling us to a meaningful relationship with Him. This is something that was important to Dr. McGee, so as you open your Bible and turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5, here's an answer Dr. McGee gave to a listener who asked what it means to have an intimate relationship with our Lord. Well, let me say, first of all, that we are living in a day when there is so much that is merely surface, and it's on the surface. That is, so many of us are living rather artificial lives, and the word that's used is that there are a great many cosmetic Christians. That is, they're just made up on the outside, and there's nothing from the heart at all. And I use that expression purposely, to know the Lord Jesus intimately. What does that mean? Well, it means that this is not lip service that you're rendering to him. It doesn't mean that you have answered all the questions that were put to you by the church board or the pastor when you joined the church. It doesn't mean this artificial sort of thing that is abroad today sort of a weak tea form of believism, as it's called, and it's almost make-believeism, so that what we're talking about is just simply this. Do you not only trust him, but do you know him to the place where you can say, I love him? Many years ago, the late Dr. Bill Anderson of the First Presbyterian Church in Dallas, he asked one of his friends, what do you think about the second coming of Christ? And this man what says it's in our catechism, isn't it? I believe in the second coming of Christ, just like you do. And Dr. Anderson insisted. He says, I don't think it's the same. He says, you say you believe in the second coming of Christ. I love his appearing. And that's the difference. There are a great many people that are rendering lip service today In our churches, the whole thing is a ritual, church membership, and therefore there's no real love for the Lord Jesus. And so I would say to you, can you say right now, I love you, Lord Jesus. And I'm talking to you now who sent the question in, and I don't know who you are, and I'd probably have never met you, and you've probably never met me. But I ask you that question, do you love Lord Jesus Christ, and you know whether you do or not, I would say that's the way to know him, is to love him. He's a person. To love him is the important thing. He even went so far as to say, if you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, just to go through a ritual and say you're obeying him and you're keeping his commandments, that may be one thing. But he says, if you love me, That's the basis on which you and I are to serve him today. 
Before we go today, I'll share another wonderful answer Dr. McGee gave to a listener who specifically asked about those commandments he just mentioned. So stay with us. Now, I got just a few minutes to read some letters from our fellow listeners around the world. Here's an email. This one's from Javier, who joins us on the Spanish Bible bus. I've been reading the Bible with you for four years. I have long waited to greet you and thank you for the incredible blessing you have been to me as well as my family who study together on Zoom because we are all spread out. May this teaching reach all God's people. And from Portugal, Marcela tells us, Your Bible teaching program is wonderful. When I listen to the teacher, I feel something different. I always tell my neighbors to listen. I am from a church background that is ritualistic, but there is so much that has changed my mind. And then here's one from Randy in Indianapolis. This is my third time through the Bible with Dr. McGee. I make a note of the date in my Bible. Along with keeping the dates, I make notes of quotes and sayings of Dr. McGee. I continue to learn more about God's Word every day with the daily study, the questions and answers on Saturdays, and the Sunday sermon. I've shared Dr. McGee's sayings over the years, and folks love them because they are good and so original. Dr. McGee's teaching is so unique, backed up with significant study, advanced degrees, years in the pulpit, and witty and country sayings. But overall, his passion for the Word is what makes it different. May God richly bless you, my beloved. Well, thanks, Randy, and I'll continue to save you a seat on the Bible bus. Great to travel with you. Our last note comes from Elena in Ukraine. I discovered the joy of reading and studying God's Word through your program, Elena writes. With your help, I see how the Bible is connected to everyday life, and by understanding that the Bible talks about the past, the present, and even the future, it equips me to get through the present. Well, God's Word certainly accomplishes its purpose, doesn't it? If you'd like to pray with us for God's whole Word to reach His whole world, we'd love to have you join our world prayer team. You can sign up at ttb.org forward slash pray and discover the privilege of being part of the work of God and all that He's doing in the lives of millions of people today. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to the precious things that we're about to hear in your Word? Thank you for welcoming us into your presence. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's Dr. J. Vernon McGee's Sunday sermon, The Forgotten Book of the Bible, on Through the Bible. I want this evening to turn to the Song of Solomon and read some verses from this book. I'm turning to the fifth chapter. I begin reading at the sixth verse. I open to my beloved... But my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I'm sick of love. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. And now dropping down to verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. 
Yea, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? I've read in your hearing this evening from the forgotten book of the Bible. It is the forgotten book because it's the neglected book. And it's the neglected book because of prudish, puritanical, and prejudiced views concerning its contents. It's written in elaborate and passionate language. There are no inhibitions in this little book. It's painted with bold strokes and bright colors, and there are no neutral tints at all. It's a delightful and delirious perfume. It is a divine intoxication, and our Occidental minds today are offended by its uncensored expression. But when you put this book down by other poetry, you'll find it's extremely mild and restrained. And there was a policy in Israel that no young man could read this book until he was 30 years of age. There was a danger of reading into this book the vulgar and the voluptuous. And we dare not today translate it into the vernacular of this hour. But why this generation should be offended is difficult to see, because we're living in the day of radio religion and television theology, and today both are spewing forth a constant stream of soap operas, vulgar dramas, low comedies, and shady jokes. And in these plays, the heroes are neurotic, the heroines are erotic, and the plots are tomerotic. And why this day should be offended at this little book, it's difficult to see. But it has a very simple story that is given a springboard in the 8th chapter and the 11th verse. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Every one for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. And this is the story of one of those vineyards that was let out to tenants. And these tenants, they were sharecroppers. That's what we call them in the South. And these croppers had one of the vineyards way up yonder in the hill country of Ephraim and these people were hillbillies, if you please. And there was a family of them. The father was dead. There was a mother, probably two daughters, and several brothers. And this girl had to work. And when she got out into the sunshine, she got tanned, and that was a, a disgrace in those days. And she had to say, I'm black but comely. And one day a shepherd, a new shepherd, appeared near her vineyard, and he was a handsome shepherd. She became acquainted with him, and in time she fell in love with him. And then one day he told her he was to leave 
but he would return. And he left, but he didn't return for day upon day and week upon week. And as the days lengthened into weeks and the weeks into months, this girl wondered and her family began to ridicule her. You put your confidence in someone that's deceived you. And one day working in the vineyard, the word went along that King Solomon was coming down the highway. And she was not interested. She stayed at her post and continued to work. And in a few minutes, someone came and said, King Solomon wants to see you. And she said, I don't know him. But when she got into his presence, she found out that he was the shepherd she had fallen in love with and the one who had loved her. And so they were married. They went away to Jerusalem and this little book, most of it takes place yonder in Jerusalem. And our particular scene is the scene where one night she's busy, occupied with her own interests, and he's out yonder busy with the things of the kingdom and she apparently has lost interest temporarily. And after a while, she misses him and then goes out to seek him. And on the way out, she meets the daughters of Jerusalem. And there takes place what we call today an antiphony. They would sing, the daughters of Jerusalem, and then she would sing. And back and forth it would go. And that's the picture. When she met them, she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I'm sick for love. I'm madly in love with him. And then they ask this question. They retort in a cynical and in a captious and in a skeptical manner. They ask this question, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? Or putting it in the common vernacular of the day, who's this fellow you're raving about? What makes you think he's different? Why don't you know there are just others just like he is? She didn't believe that. In fact, she knew he was different. May I say to you tonight, young people, you're going into a world today that's just as cynical and agnostic today. They're going to ask you the question, who is this Jesus you're talking about? They're going to want to know about him, for this little book sets before us not only the glory of the marital relationship and that marriage is ordained of God, but the early church from the very beginning saw in this book a relationship between Christ and the believer. And the world's going to ask you, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? After all, the world today's put Buddha and Muhammad in their anthologies of religion right along with Jesus. And today the world has put Jesus down on the plane of just a religious teacher. And they're going to want to know from you and me, what's thy beloved more than another beloved? Now we need something more today than just a few well-turned answers. 
We need something more than just a logical argument. We need something more than apologetic theology. There are certain imperatives that are essential if we're to meet the flood tide of unbelief and indifference today. And may I say to you that I cannot go along with the Oxford student who recently made this comment. He says, as the Elizabethan age had a sense of adventure and growth, as the Stuart age had a sense of romance, as the Puritan age had a sense of sin, as the Victorian age had a sense of respectability, as the post-war generation had a sense of futility, so this modern generation is developing a sense of purpose, a sense of vocation and of urgency. I wish that were true. But this world tonight's as skeptical as it's ever been. And tonight you and I must be able to answer the question, what's thy beloved more than another beloved? Therefore, the first imperative that we would like to mention, and we'll need it because we have this treasure in earthen vessels today, and we need this. We must know Christ. May I say to you, this bride knew the bridegroom. My beloved is white and ruddy. He's the chiefest among 10,000. She knew him intimately. She knew him personally. She knew him privately. She knew him by close association with him. And without stammering or stuttering, she could say, My beloved is white and ruddy. He's the chiefest among 10,000. And that was in the days before astronomical figures were invented, before the telescope at Palomar and the New Deal in Washington. You'd say today, He's one in a million. One in a billion, my beloved. And tonight, if you're able to say that, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. You must know Him. It's essential to salvation. It's the baseline from which everything that Christian originates. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Yonder on the Damascus road, a brilliant young Pharisee came in contact with the living, resurrected Christ. And he says, Who art thou, Lord? And may I say that there on the Damascus road he came to know him as his Savior. But that was just an introduction. After all, the launching of a, of a great ship into an ocean... <laughs> What does that ship know about the uncharted wastes and the strange and far-off poets that knows nothing? It'll have to sail about a while. And so Saul of Tarsus came to know him yonder on the Damascus road as his Savior. But when he came to the end of his life, arrested in Rome in the Mamertine prison, Paul in that spot, could write and say, even then, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. This man who had walked with him for a quarter of a century, this man who knew him, oh, I would say Paul knew him, knew him better than any of us know him. 
Yet that man said, my ambition is to know him. And when Paul prayed for the Ephesians, he didn't pray that they would get all the physical things they wanted and needed. He didn't pray they'd have healing of body, although it's all right to pray for these things. Don't misunderstand me. But he did pray this, that he might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and understanding and revelation in the knowledge of him, that you might know him. Paul says, I'm praying you might know him. Now, to know him, there's certain foundational doctrines. There's certain fixtures of the faith. There's certain basic beliefs. There is a Christian creed. There used to be a church down here on Figueroa Street that had this motto up on the side of it. No creed but Christ. I would say that that's an oversimplification as I'm speaking to this dignified group tonight, but if you should ask me privately, I should say it was rather asinine. May I say to you this evening, it's not quite that simple. No creed but Christ, then if you know him, my friend, and have come to him, there's certain things that go along with him. And one of these things is the plenary, verbal inspiration of the Scripture. You've got no business going into Christian work unless you have full confidence in this book. I don't like to fly, and when I have to, I always join the pilot in examining the plane before we take off. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I help him. And I said to one of them up in Seattle, Washington, I said, uh, what do you think about the plane? He said, look, never take this plane off the ground unless I had full confidence in it. Friend, tonight you got no business in Christian work unless you got confidence in it. And that goes along with knowing Jesus Christ. That's essential. Then there's the deity of Christ. Then may I say that he shed his blood for your sins and my sins. There's the bodily resurrection. And then something that's omitted today, his present intercession at God's right hand. And then I would like to add this, the premillennial, pre-tribulation coming of Christ. I think it's near. These are established truths. And there is a satanic insinuation today that these truths are not settled. Some doubt about it. We need more illumination now, I go along with that. We need more illumination on all the great truths of Scripture. But when you put a new window in the room to get more light, you don't have to dig up the foundation to do it. And when we get new illumination, it does not mean these great bedrock truths are going to be changed one whit, my beloved. But may I say to you tonight, to know Christ means more than this. Paul didn't mean just to know a set of doctrines and a creed. Paul says that I may know him. And when he said that, he meant to know him personally and intimately. Know him so well, young people, that if he walked into this church tonight, you'd know him. But I tell you this, if he did walk in here, he'd blind you. The glory of Christ would blind you, it did Saul of Tarsus. 
And he's not the lowly Nazarene tonight, but the glorified Christ. But I think we'd know him, and we ought to know him like that. Several years ago, a Yankee wrote a book on Andrew Jackson. There's another word that goes with that that I can't use. (laughs) And my, what a rascal he made of Andrew Jackson. I'll be honest with you, I lived in Nashville at the time. I was highly incensed. And then a southerner wrote a book on Andrew Jackson. And it was dripping honey and honeysuckle. It was saccharine sweet. It was overdone. Even Jackson didn't even need halo polish after this dear sister got through with him. May I say, as I read both those books and put them aside, I came to the conclusion that neither one knew Jackson. Then at a summer conference, I met Leonard Donaldson, who was the grandson of the adopted son of Andrew Jackson, for he had no children of his own. Leonard told me something about Andrew Jackson, and he said, come up and visit me at home. And I went up to the old Donaldson home across from the hermitage on the Lebanon Pike back among those magnolia trees, and he took me up and he showed me pictures of Rachel Jackson and why Andrew Jackson had fought a duel and killed a man over it, told me about how he used to come back from Washington and how they would walk arm in arm for several hours through those lovely gardens and how they would get up Sunday morning and go over to that little church and sit for a two-hour sermon. And you, you've never been in a torture chamber until you sat in those pews in that little hermitage church. I understand they've taken them out recently. May I say to you, after I had been there, I came to the conclusion the Yankee didn't know Jackson, and the Southerner didn't know Jackson. But if I could only talk to Rachel, she knew him. She knew him. She knew him personally. She knew him intimately. Friend, tonight, you can know Jesus Christ like that. Somebody says, where can I know him like that? Again, may I say, we can know him like that in his word. This is the only place you can know him. We sing a hymn. I've never yet figured out what it means. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and I walk with him, or he walks with me and talks with me and tells me that I am his own. Where does he ever tell you he's his own, that you belong to him? The only place that he speaks is in this book. This is the living word that presents him the living Christ, and he's speaking in nobody's garden except through this book here, my friend. This is the living book. And through this book you see the living Christ. I had a friend who was a Canadian in school, and he was telling me about the first time he ever went down to Niagara Falls from the Canadian side. He said that he was a boy, 14 years old, and he'd saved up his money, and 
he got on the train and came down and said he couldn't wait. Got off the train and just beat it down toward where he could hear falls rushing. And he saw ahead of him a great building. And so he saw people going into that building and he could hear falls rushing on the other side. So he went in the building. Said he never had such a disappointment. Looked like a great union station in America. People sitting around eating peanuts and just some dozing. And he could hear the falls. And he looked around and he saw down at the end of that building the largest picture he'd ever seen in his life. One whole end of the building, a great frame. And the strangest picture to have that was a picture of Niagara Falls. And he thought, what a funny place to have a picture of Niagara Falls at Niagara Falls. And so he began to walk down looking at the picture. And the closer he got, he saw he was looking through a glass upon the living, running falls. This book is a frame through which you can come to know and see the living Christ. The first thing that's so important is to know him and to know him intimately and to know him personally. The past few months I've came to a conclusion in my own experience, if you don't mind me mentioning this particular thing, and I ought not to say that here. I wish I were a hundred miles away to say this. But I came to the conclusion that I was very ignorant about this book. And I've decided to give two more hours every day to the book. I want to know him. Paul says that I might know him. Oh, friend, tonight, may I say to you, that's a life's work, is to know Jesus Christ. And you'll never exalt, you'll never exhaust this pursuit if you live to be a hundred. Paul could say at the end of his life that I might know him. And then the second imperative we mentioned tonight is you must love Christ. Did you notice what she said when she was challenged about him? She said, his mouth is most sweet. Yea, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Bride not only knew him, she loved him. And to know Christ is to love him. I do not know what your New Testament department will do with this, but may I say that I'm convinced that the man who wrote Galatians saw Christ crucified. The man who wrote, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ liveth in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. man was there. And don't misunderstand, I'm not asking anybody to live the crucified life. I don't think you can. I hear a great deal of that today. Somebody talked to me about it the other day, said, I'm just trying so hard to live the crucified life. And I said, when were you crucified? Well, they said, I'm trying to be today. Well, I said, Paul was talking about a crucifixion that took place 1,900 years ago. And we're crucified with Christ when he died 1,900 years ago. And the man who wrote that, I'm confident was there. 
because he was a zealous young Pharisee, and that boy didn't stay home that day when the one he hated above everyone else, Jesus, was being nailed to a cross, for he hated him. And when he stood yonder with the other Pharisees, he must have shot out the lip, he must have ridiculed him, and yet this man, this man Paul could say later on when he came to know him, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. My friend and I, we must love him. Peter said, that great, big, burly, rugged fisherman said, whom having not seen, you love. And John wrote and said, we love him because he first loved us. And the bride here says his mouth is most sweet. I love that. It was the wonderful words that came forth from his mouth. Even the enemy testified to that. That crowd that heard him, they said, he speaks with authority and not like the scribes. The soldiers that went out to rest him came back and said, never man spake as this man spake. And others marveled at the wonderful words of life that came from his lips. And here's what he said. If you love me, keep my commandments. We talk about loving him tonight. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. If you love him, my friend, tonight, you'll want to serve him. If you love him tonight, you'll want to be obedient to him. The first heresy that came into the church was the heresy of leaving the first love. He said to the church in Ephesus, I have this against thee, that thou hast left thy first love. And Tertullian, writing later on, said this. He said that the early church loved Christ so that when Rome insisted that they just take a pinch of incense and put before an idol, the early Christians said, we can't. We love him so. The early church said, when they suggested that they put a statue of Jesus in the pantheon along with the other gods, Tertullian says the early church would rather die than see Jesus put on a plane with other gods. And that's the reason they were persecuted. If you love me, keep my commandments. I've often wondered, Somebody would say, well, we don't love you, Lord. I think he'd say, don't worry about them. Let them go. The thing for you to settle above everything else is whether you love me or not. That is imperative to Christian service. Yonder by the Sea of Galilee in that early morning, there sat a man who had denied him. As far as I'm concerned, he's as base as Judas was in his denial. And the Lord said to him, Simon, lovest thou me? He didn't say, Simon, can I depend on you now? Have you learned your lesson? Did he say, Simon, would you promise me you'll do better? Did he, did he say to him, Simon, I've got a card I'd like for you to sign? May I say to you tonight, the only thing he said to that man was, Simon, lovest thou me? Young person tonight going in Christian service, 
you'll do well to ask yourself the question, do I love him? Can I truthfully say when I'm alone tonight and look up, can I say, Lord Jesus, I love you? Now for the last, the third imperative is make him known. Listen to these friends of the bridegroom. Where is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? The bride has waxed so eloquent. They've turned from skeptics to seekers. They've turned from foes to friends. They've turned from inquisitors to inquirers. They've turned from dark doubters to devoted disciples. And their question mark has been straightened out into an exclamation point. The early church loved Christ. They knew Christ. And they made him known. Paul could write to the Romans, and we have a notion that Paul's terminus was Rome. Read the epistle to the Romans, and you'll find that he said, Whensoever I go to Spain, I'll come by you. In carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, Rome was just a whistle stop to the apostle Paul. He was going to the ends of the earth with this glorious gospel. And by the third century, the gospel had covered that Roman Empire, gone beyond it. It had gone into India and into China. All of northern Africa had been reached with the gospel message, and out of that area came the three great minds of the early church. As one historian said years ago, three shaggy Africans were the ones who carried the torch, Tertullian, Athanasius, and Augustine. And they had no modern methods of transportation or communication. They just had a passion to make him known. Woe is me. Didn't mean woe. I'll go no farther. It meant that they were going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Young person tonight, may I say this in closing? You can read a wheelbarrow full of mission books and you won't go beyond the shadow of the church steeple. You can look upon the fields that are white unto harvest until you have myopia. We must answer the question, do we know him? Do we love him? Do we want to make him known? These are important questions that require answers. Don't put them off. You can learn more about God's great love for you and what it means to know Him and love Him by visiting ttb.org and searching for How Can I Know God? There you'll find several free resources by Dr. McGee on the Christian life. And then you can also give us a call at 1-800-65-BIBLE, and we'll send a few of these resources to you by mail. And for those of you who don't know God, but you want to continue your understanding of His deep love for you, we have many free Bible study helps that are available to you at ttb.org. 
They're arranging from sermons to study guides, booklets, and more. So I'd encourage you to visit ttb.org yourself and check out the selection. You know, one that might be of particular interest to you is Dr. McGee's digital book, Beloved, Love Lessons from the Song of Solomon. It's a terrific compliment to our current study on the daily program. Hint, hint. I hope that you're going to join us, by the way. And as we learned today, the Song of Solomon has often been misunderstood. However, in this booklet, a deeper look reveals God's tender yet fervent love for his church and his children. As Dr. McGee says, when our Lord looks at the church today, he doesn't see it filled with faults. He sees it as being altogether lovely. He sees it as the church that he purchased with his own blood. Download your free copy at ttb.org or call 1-800-65-BIBLE if you're looking for a particular resource by Dr. McGee to deepen your personal study of God's Word. And as always, we'd love to hear how God's using these studies in your life. You know, letters from fellow listeners are always such an encouragement to all of us. So why don't you share your story with us? You can reach us at biblebus at ttb.org. You can always call 1-800-65-BIBLE. Leave a message anytime. You can also post on our Facebook page. And of course, you can always write. You can write to Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. Or in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. And when you're in touch, tell us how you listen. That really helps. By app, online, your local Christian radio station, Alexa, YouTube, whatever it is, there are so many different ways that you can hop aboard the Bible bus, and we want to know what your favorite is. So thanks in advance for helping us be good stewards of the resources that God provides through faithful friends like you. And speaking of faithful friends, we don't talk about it often, but if God is calling you to join the faithful circle of supporters who help us to keep the Bible bus rolling along in your neighborhood and in more than 250 languages around the world, visit ttb.org forward slash give or call 1-800-65-BIBLE. Now, as promised, to close us today, here's Dr. McGee answering the question a listener who asked, in John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What are these commandments? Are they the Ten Commandments or something else? Well, may I say to you, as far as the moral system is concerned, a Christian, when you say he's not under the Ten Commandments, that doesn't mean that he's to go out and break them. It just means as a system for salvation or a system for living, the Christian has a higher system than that. It's even higher than the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount says, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Now that's living on a high plane. But the Christian is told, Paul told Ephesians, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake forgiven you. Now my friend, that's high living. When you get up on that plane, that's one of the commandments, by the way. And I think that you find them in the epistles. If you want a real list of them, go to the first epistle to the Thessalonians. And I think maybe it's the second chapter, third chapter, even in the fourth chapter. You'll find there a great many things that Christians are enjoined to do. You find it in Ephesians. You find it in Romans. That's where we find out about Christian living. And I think in particular... The epistle to the Philippians is the great epistle on Christian living, so that many of them are great principles by which you're to live. That one, be ye kind, tenderhearted, that's a great principle. Then in Philippians, you have, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
My, that's a great principle, by the way. It's something for Christians. You're not having any problem with commandments for Christians if you just look around in the Scripture, in the New Testament. Jesus came Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.